This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome our listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ And today I'm delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Regina Harborn. She's an associate professor in the School of Health Sciences at Duquesne University of Pittsburgh. Welcome, Dr. Harborn. Thank you. Well, today I'm really excited. We're going to talk about a really interesting study that you and your colleagues published. It's entitled Start Play Physical Therapy Intervention Impacts Motor and Cognitive Outcomes in infants with neuromotor disorders. I thought I'd do a little summary and then we can talk about your study. Sure. This was a randomized controlled trial and it compared usual care, early intervention with start play plus usual care in 112 infants with motor delay who were recruited at seven to 16 months across five different sites. The start play intervention included twice weekly home visits with the infant and its caregiver for 12 weeks provided by start uh, play trained physical therapists. With respect to results for infants overall and for those with significant motor delay, positive effects of start play were observed at three months for cognition, for fine motor and problem solving and play skills, and at 12 months for fine motor and reaching frequency outcomes. For infants with mild motor delay, the only positive effects were found for the receptive communication outcome. It's a really nice tight study. And my first question In reading your introduction, it really struck me that you note that a recent systematic review of interventions for infants with movement disorders reveals, uh, in my view, a disturbing lack of evidence of its efficacy and heterogeneity of the intervention approaches. It's really sad to see that that's still the case uh, in this area of practice in, my, in, in our field. Why do you think this continues to be the case? You're, you're very right. And um, I think there are three big barriers. Um, and the first one really comes in the line of diagnostics. So early diagnostic categories in infancy are kind of hard to come by. That's really elusive. So the type and the frequency and the intensity of intervention for any movement delay or any disability is really all over the place. You know, they get intervention, but because the diagnosis isn't made very early, it's difficult to um, find the participants that you would like to participate in the targeted intervention like we had. And the second thing is that developmental research is very challenging because you're trying to parse the effects of the intervention, from just overall development, children change over time, no matter what you do to them. So that's another factor. There's so many different family factors. Um, There's just effects of a lot of multiple influences that we already know about development 
um, and then we're going to add something in there. So parsing that out is requires developmental designs and sort of a lot of different types of expertise um, because it's a really complex system and complex statistics too. So you need a, a team member who's good at that. And then the last thing is that there are studies um, that have been included in a systematic review, but the quality of those studies is really poor, um, partly because they lack fidelity um, measures for the intervention. So there's no way to really tell what they're delivering in the intervention. We've gotten really used to having a shorthand name for an approach like NDT or VOITA, which is a approach that's popular overseas, but that doesn't tell us exactly what they do and what are the key ingredients for the approach. So that makes the starting point even fuzzier um, for what they're going to um, deliver. So the past research just has a lot of deficiencies. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned those three factors. I see them as an editor. I see the lack of intervention definition and lack of fidelity measures all the time. Mm -hmm. in manuscripts that are submitted. And I, I see the problem with quality in the systematic reviews that people submit to us. And I also see the problem with the, um, the heterogeneity of, of the, the population and the difficulty in recruiting them, which of course is why you ended up with a five site uh, study, which is very challenging, but it's really the only way that we can get around that particular problem. Mm -hmm. So I, I applaud that. Um, in terms of the definition of the intervention, you mentioned usual care. This is always a challenge in studies like the one that you have done. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, describe how it, uh, usual care was defined and whether or not you were able to standardize that in your five sites? Well, it was not standardized, um, and that's why we videotaped the usual care, whatever the child was getting, as long as we had consent to do that. And I do want to throw out a huge thank you to those therapists, um, early interventionists in the community who allowed us to videotape them, because we really don't know what's going on out there. Um, we don't have a, a good idea of what um, kinds of ingredients are in the usual early intervention. So we're grateful for them. Um, and so we videotaped them and did our fidelity comparison with our start play therapists. So to see if they're adhering to what we want them to do. And then we also had things that we looked at so that we could differentiate between what's usual care and what's our care and what start play is. And we could identify several common ingredients across the different sites. And they're very typically physical therapy things. So activities for strengthening and lengthening specific muscle groups, including management of muscle tone, just general exercise principles, uh, repetition of particular movement patterns that are thought to be normal, using eccentric and concentric types of movements, developmental positions, um, giving parents an exercise program, which PTs do no matter who you are, they often give a home program. So they had, and those often involved repetition as well of specific movements. One thing that was very different um, because of our cognitive aspect in the start play pro program was the use of toys. So um, in usual care, physical therapy, early intervention, toys are used primarily as bait. Um, so to get a child to move. 
but not to explore the toy or learn about the toy. Um, it was more, or sometimes for reward, but not for actually interacting with the toy. In fact, therapists often interrupt the child using a toy. They get to the toy and then they pull it away again so that they can get the child to move. So um, that was very different. So you couldn't standardize it, but you could describe it and characterize it. Exactly. So could you talk a little bit uh, so our listeners understand how your start play intervention differed from usual care? Sure. So start play is really built from principles of developmental science, which tells us that um, early development is a dynamic interaction of multiple systems and that very early infancy is um, cognition is embodied, meaning that motor skills and cognitive skills really are interwoven and dependent on each other. So learning is simply learning. So motor learning isn't a different thing from cognitive learning, it's all learning. And we need to develop these brain pathways and sort of help them to accelerate these passive information. So it's kind of like, uh, building the architecture of the brain. You want to build the framework. You want to build the connections between motor and cognitive and social and language as well. But physical therapists are really primed to show the child motor-based problem solving. So how do I interact with the world, learn about the world through my movement system? So start play actually starts with the cognitive construct instead of thinking, oh, I need to work on trunk extension, we think of this child needs to learn about, for example, a cognitive construct called object permanence, meaning understanding that objects exist even when you can't see them anymore. And how, what do I need to do to understand object permanence? I need to be able to look behind the thing that is blocking my view of the toy that I want. And in order to do that, I need to extend my trunk. So really, thinking cognitive first and then building on with the motor base after that. That's clearly different from what you described as the usual care, which was more like teach extension. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, one of the things that struck me, and I have to admit bothered me, <laughs> is that your design called for a comparison of start play plus usual care against usual care. Mm -hmm. Now, as a reader and someone interested in, in rehab, early intervention, I first want to know the answer to the question of start play versus usual care. So could you talk a little bit about why your design looked at start play on top of usual care instead of a head-to-head -head comparison of start play versus usual care? Well, you know, um, myself and my colleagues uh, who are PIs on the study, we, we've had, we've made a lot of mistakes. We've done a lot of studies in the past, and I found out a long time ago that you can't take things away from families that they already have. And so very simply, no parent is going to give up their usual care. And any infant who has a delay in the United States or a diagnosis is entitled by law to early intervention. So all these children who qualified to be in our study because they were delayed enough, 
and they were at the level that we wanted, just beginning to sit, they already had usual care. They already had early intervention. So um, I tried before to take away usual care <laughs> in an old decades ago. And um, the families just, they bond with those early interventionists. So um, we couldn't ask them. And also ethically, we really couldn't ask them to give up something that they were already tied to. So the children um, in this study we're going to have to have, continue to have their usual care. I know it's not the best design, but it's a practical consideration and yeah, I get it. a I, way to get recruitment. Yeah, I understand. Without 112 infants and caregivers, you don't have a study. <laughs> I understand the practical aspects, but let's talk for a moment about the ethical issue that you raised. Did your group struggle with the ethics of doing usual care in the absence of ev any evidence of efficacy? Well, the usual care was being provided not by us. It was being provided by the therapist in the community. So they were already existing. We were coming in and sort of invading their territory, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so they were going to continue getting the care they had been getting. And we had really no say about that. I always struggle with the fact that I've heard a million times people cons are concerned about the ethics of withholding care, but they never worry about the ethics of providing care that has no known efficacy. Mm -hmm. We seem to ignore that part of the ethical dilemma. Right, right. Um, and the answer to design-wise, I think, to the problem that we have is to just have... So we had two groups and people might say, well, the start play group, you added on, you had greater dosage in that group versus the usual care group. So I think the answer to this problem in early intervention would be to then add on an equal amount of what we see in usual care in the other right. group. And right. so, yeah. And to the extent that usual care is not efficacious, then you are comparing start play against usual care. Because if, if we assume that it's not efficacious, so it's probably not going to be doing too much to these kids anyhow. Mm -hmm. But I see, the, I see the practical dilemma. Yeah. I, I understand that completely. I really struggle with it, and I wish therapists better understood the dilemma of, of, dilemma of doing things that have no known efficacy. We put patients at risk doing that, and we seem okay with it. I've never heard a therapist struggle with that part of the dilemma, ever. Right, yeah. I think it's uh, it's even harder when it's embedded in law. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I get that part, yeah. I get um, that part. That the they, families feel that they have, it's a necessity to provide these things that they have, you know, been given. So yeah. it's not just the therapist, it's the whole structure of the early, the way early intervention is provided. Another design issue is you did a comparison, an overall comparison of all subjects in each of your experimental groups. And then you segmented your population by significant motor delay versus mild motor delay. Why did you make that choice? And did you have enough power to, to do that? So originally we were uh, 
we did a stratified randomization. So we did classify the children as, you know, from mild and, and to severe so that our two groups would be equal so that we wouldn't have too many mild ones in one group or too many severe in the other. And then as we were looking at this wide range of skill level that we had where some children were just sort of a little bit delayed and they were kind of like some of the ones who were premature, they were tending to catch up and they didn't have any real disability, any you know chronic lifelong disability. This again goes back to you know the problem with diagnosis. Babies aren't diagnosed that early. So many of them were just at risk because of something um, and delayed. As we looked at our group, we had this wide range. So we said, why don't we look at them in these mild versus severe? So we figured out a good cut point. Um, and yes, we weren't, you're right. We didn't have the power that we would have liked for those each separate groups, but we found it informative to look at them in those two different ways. Um, and we would have felt like we didn't do a complete job if we hadn't done that because they were so different. Yeah, I liked it actually. I thought that was a nice feature. Well, let's talk a little bit about your results. Overall, the infants with significant motor delays who received start play showed statistically significant changes in sitting, reaching, fine motor, problem solving, and global development during the study. Are the results that you found in the overall group clinically significant in the overall group well we really they were significant for the more severe group so that's yeah that's in in those things that you mentioned so absolutely um for sitting and gross motor the effects exceeded the sort of minimally important difference noted by the test that we used which was the gross motor function measure um reaching was a coded behavioral test so it wasn't a standardized test but the functional ramifications of being able to reach and grab a desired object are sort of very clear and necessary for children to learn. Um, the global development category is really um, more of the cognitive component of the Bailey. And the, the Bailey is necessary in infancy because it has become the gold standard, sort of the IQ test for, for babies. But it's a little bit more difficult to interpret because it's still very motor based. Um, many of the things that the child has to do to show their understanding involves the manipulation of objects, which is difficult for the children that we work with. And, and it also is not a highly predictive test. So if you test a child on the Bailey when they're under a year old, it's not necessarily going to correlate highly with how they would test when they're 10 years old. So, however, we did find some differences in that area and we're, we're happy about it. Um, so with whatever the test is that we have, we, we showed some important changes. I think the fine motor results are really important because we do know that um, the children who have better fine motor skills at the start, as they enter school, end up doing better at school. And that is really why this study was funded by the Department of Education, <laughs> because they want to know how to get children school ready. Um, and so knowing that they have fine motor, strong skills, even at the long-term result for these more severe children was really important, I think, and clinically relevant. Yet in the mild group, the findings were not particularly striking. 
Mm-hmm. So, so given what you just described in the significantly impaired group versus the mild, what, what would you say to therapists as the implications, the take-home message for your study for early intervention? Well, I think that the um, mild children, now that it's a few years after, you know, we recruited them, we do know what some of them were diagnosed with. Some of them had um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or they've ended up with that. Some of them ended up with an autism spectrum disorder. um, And some of them just were delayed, just a little bit slow. So I think that in those groups, um, no matter what you do with to them, they're mild, they they get their movement, they start walking, they get mobile, um, they can reach and they can play, they can explore their environment. I don't really think that the therapy provision is all that important in those children. <laughs> I don't know that we're doing harm, but I don't know that we're really boosting their skills. Um, So going forward, I think it would be, you know, we would just need to be a little bit more rigorous in, and there are now better tests for early diagnosis for some things like cerebral palsy, Um, looking at movements and looking at, um, there's some new tests that can help provide us with data. I think being a little bit more careful in that who gets into the study, we wouldn't have to do this split between the mild and the, and the more severe. We could get the children who truly do have some kind of a motor deficit early on and and look at that. So I think the implications are overall that um, the start play key ingredients can really be a boost for the children with severe motor impairments above what they are getting in early intervention I wonder if what we do in early intervention with really focusing on motor skills and not, I think sometimes we interrupt their investigation of the world by our focus on this is how you sit, this is how you straighten up, this is how you stand, all this sort of attention to just the motor. Um, I think perhaps we are not being helpful to their overall development when we do that. I really like the way you describe the implications because that was my take home from reading your study. And I'm not an early interventionist in any way. Mm-hmm. How is that message being received by your colleagues in early intervention? Well, amazingly, what happens when you explain the um, initial start play intervention, therapists will say, oh, I do that, I do that, I do that, like they already do it. I think what they mean is that they do understand that it's that learning things outside of motor is important and they feel like they are somehow engaging that. But when we then come down to exactly, no, no, you start with the cognitive and you don't tell them how to move. You let them start to move. You let them initiate. You help the parents figure out brainstorm about what are different ways to challenge their cognition because you have to move as a baby to get your cognitive skills boosted. And when we start to talk about the key ingredients and how to do it, then the early interventionists are very interested and they realize, oh, that isn't what I'm doing. 
that that's not what I do, but I, I could do that, but it's hard and I don't really have the information because what they don't have information on is how those cognitive skills are um, in, incrementally advanced. Yeah. So they don't know how to make a small little advance. They make it too hard and then the child can't make the connection. If, if I was a therapist in early intervention, I would really focus on those with the significant impairments. And then I'd totally revamp the, the usual care to go mm-hmm. more along the, the start play air, um, direction since we now have some efficacy data. Yeah. And it, it is a little bit hard when we train the early, we, we have another study that we're starting um, that's NIH funded where we're looking at doing the dosage sort of comparison that we initially, that, that I had talked about earlier. Um, and when I train new start play interventionists, they, they get it. But when it comes down to, I am now in front of a child and a parent and I have to perform, I have to somehow incorporate this. It's very hard because as therapists, we're really used to moving things with our hands and straightening joints and being very mechanical. And so it's a very hard thought process, but they get it. So, yeah. Yeah. So it calls for some changes in how education is done with therapists. Yes. Now, last question the uh, the findings are relatively robust in the short run, but not so much in the long run. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that because of a lack of a booster, or are there other reasons that you think uh, you found the tail off of, of effects? Well, remember that everybody's continuing to get what they always get. They get their usual care. So we come in for three months, we test them at three months, and then we go away for nine months. We don't do it. Well, we come back at six months and do an assessment, but otherwise they're getting their usual care. So I do think that there's a fading effect of the things that we do and that we talk about with the parents and um, either a longer intervention phase or some sort of booster, I think would be really helpful. Yeah. Why would we expect something that ends at three months would have an effect at 12 months. That's exactly what uh, one of my colleagues asked. Once we had the grant and we were starting, she said, do we really think (laughs) that we're going to see something in 12 months? And we were like, well, we're hoping. So um, yeah, so it was nice that we saw some trajectory change that sort of kept going, but I think we might be able to get a bigger effect if we had the opportunity to either increase the length of time or have a booster. Well, it sounds like another study. (laughs) Definitely. Well, thank you, Dr. Harborn. I really, really enjoyed the study. I think it's an important piece of work. And I would encourage our listeners to take a look at the study so you can really read the details for yourself. And and I hope you're successful in continuing this line of work because I really think it can have a positive impact in uh, early intervention. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the care that was taken during the whole publishing process. Um, we had a lot of good feedback and we're glad that it's in the PT journal. It makes us we, proud. We are too. We are. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is an APTA podcast.